From DAI's global development team, I'm Megan Howe, and you're listening to Unburdened, where we give our cut on global health issues that go beyond healthcare. In this series, we're asking whether gender equality can make us healthier. And today, we explore what makes men and women unequal. If we really want to talk about why men and women aren't equal, we need to think about what inequality really is. As we spoke about briefly in episode one, inequality has many dimensions. It's not just about how much money or resources one group has over another. Inequality can also be systemic, based around social, economic, or political structures, like discriminatory laws or policies. If we focus purely on gender inequality, we find there are similar complexities and nuances. For example, does gender equality mean that men and women are equally healthy or equally empowered? Okay, gender equality could be a very vague concept. Like first, it depends on how you define it, right? When we talk about gender equality, there are two important uh, dimensions. One is about the well-being, the gap between men and women, and the other is focused on the empowerment of women. So that the, the second dimension is more of about women's achievement. That's Yu Che Su. She's a statistician and analyst at the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP's report office, which compiles and analyzes data for the Global Gender Inequality Index. So I, I think for, from a statistician point of view, it's like, first, uh, before we collect data, we need to make sure what we know we, were, we want to measure. And that's usually how we start with the develop a index. That's how UNDP developed the Gender Inequality Index, or GII. This index, we wanted to focus on uh, empowerment. So conceptually, it's very clear. Second step, uh, you, you need to select which dimension you want to measure. Looking at the way inequality is measured and reported on can help us define it, making an opaque concept clearer. She says there are three dimensions to the index, measured by five indicators. So GII is uh, designed to measure the gender inequality empowerment, and it shows the loss in potential human development due to the uh, inequality between female and male in these three dimensions, reproductive health, empowerment, and labor market. So um, reproductive health dimension represents your freedom to control your own life, your autonomy of body, and empowerment uh, represents your freedom and right to uh, make social and economic change. And labor market uh, represents the equal access to opportunity and resources. And this index um, is uh, range from zero to one. So when the GI value is low, it indicates low inequality between women and men, right? So in other words, higher GI uh, tell you higher inequality, so we have higher loss to human development. That's an important distinction. Yuche says the GII doesn't measure the gender gap in countries, but rather the development loss. Progress across each indicator is equally weighted. We, we want this index uh, to encourage more balanced achievement in all dimensions and also across genders. That countries doing well in multiple indicators receive higher score and they cannot uh, by just investing in one single indicator to improve their scores. 
So according to UNDP, there are three major dimensions of gender inequality. One, reproductive health, which is measured by adolescent fertility and maternal mortality. Two, empowerment, which is measured by representation in secondary schooling and parliamentary participation. And three, the labor force participation rate, which speaks to how women are empowered economically. Then uh, a very unique part of this GI and why it's so popular still now is because it has this dimension of reproductive health because no index, no gender indices include this dimension. And still now it's uh, only GII uh, measure this dimension and um, how society treat a woman while they are during childbirth. It's a very obvious signal how a woman's status is in the society, right? Let's look at reproductive health. Childbearing and female biology can absolutely exacerbate gender inequality and put women at a disproportionate risk to men. Women are at their most physically vulnerable when they are pregnant or recovering from childbirth and need access to proper health care. There is no male equivalent to maternal mortality. Without maternal health services, women's lives hang in the balance. In countries with poor maternal health services, women face an extremely high risk of dying simply from having a baby. For example, in Nigeria, women face a 1 in 21 lifetime risk of dying from pregnancy. In other high-income countries, such as the UK, a woman's lifetime risk of dying from pregnancy is 1 out of 8,400. The World Health Organization estimates that every day some 800 women die from treatable or preventable causes from pregnancy and childbirth. Because childbearing can be so risky for women, measuring maternal mortality and adolescent fertility do provide useful indicators for female health equality. My name is um, Adetoro Adeguke. I'm a midwife. Uh, I have a PhD in midwifery and maternal epidemiology. Uh, when it comes to uh, maternal mortality, uh, it's a very strong indicator of the functionality of the health system. But then it shows to what extent you know, the health system is prepared and ready you know, to be able to uh, look after women when they are at their most uh, vulnerable point. Those two indicators actually talks a lot about, you know, the, the preparedness of the health facilities, the uh, friendliness of the health, health facilities. And as, as a result, you know, it goes beyond issues of women, children and adolescents, talks about the health system itself. You'll hear more from Adatoro in episode four. But the point is, because women bear children, they face enormous health risks that men are not exposed to. Even menstruation can exacerbate female inequality. Some cultures promote a form of exile or exclusion from society when a woman is on her period. The practice uh, is called chhopadi, uh, which is heavily practices, uh, practiced in uh, Western uh, Nepal, far Western uh, Nepal, uh, where women are literally kept in um, you know, sheds uh, that are uh, built outside their houses. And in general, in most of the cases, these are couch sheds that the women have, have to, uh, the women are kept during those four or five days of their menstruation. And unless and until they purify themselves on the fourth or the fifth day of their uh, cycle, uh, they are not allowed inside the homes. And there have been cases of rape, there has been cases of snake bites and deaths resulting out of these. 
these kind of uh, structures that are built in not just um, hampers uh, the psychological aspects, but also uh, their physical uh, confidence and beings. That's Deepa Shakya. She's a gender advocate in Nepal. She told me there was a lot of shame associated with periods when she was growing up. Similar practices happen across India and Ethiopia, where women are excluded from community life during menstruation. All of these things highlight that a woman's reproductive capability means she faces a greater risk to her health and a greater likelihood of exclusion from society, just because of her biology. The second GII dimension is around the labor force participation rate. Women are frequently excluded from the workforce, putting them at a distinct economic disadvantage, with less control over money, resources, their bodies, and their life choices. Women face these barriers often due to historical gender roles, the work-family balance, unsafe or limited transport options, and a lack of affordable care for children or ailing parents. The final GII dimension is empowerment which is about affording women more power, rights, or authority. Maybe unsurprisingly, progress is most difficult here. UNDP frames empowerment as the percentage of women who've completed secondary school and the proportion of women holding national parliamentary seats. For many countries, making advances in this dimension entails a cultural and societal shift So it's not enough to just expand girls' access to education or give women a leadership role. They need to have agency to make those gains count. Agency is the ability for an individual, and in this case, it could either be a male or a female, to have an informed, an information to be educated well enough to voice their opinion. I think it moves an individual from just being passive to also being active but also being, having knowledge and experience to be able to speak about things that matter. That's Zainab Mukaram. She's a gender expert who lives and works in northern Nigeria and has worked on female empowerment projects for years. She says building agency helps people understand their rights and the laws that exist to protect those rights. For people to be able to speak up, for people to be able to talk and talk about what it is that matter to them, they need to you know, be educated. They need to understand fully what it is that is happening around them and understand that they have a role to play in trying to make a difference or at least speak about things. Understanding that you do, as, as an individual or as a human being, you do have rights and there are certain uh, maybe organizations or institutions that, you know, uh, that pull a, a community together should also understand that, you know, there, there are rights that need to be respected. Building on understanding that people have rights and then we go into what are the laws that also govern, you know, the areas, the communities that they work in. But basically, people must understand that they do have rights and they have the opportunity to be able to exercise their rights. And then we go into what are those structures that are available to support individuals who want to actually also be able to, what do I call it now, to, to ensure that their rights are well, you know, are well taken into cognizance. A woman with agency and an understanding of her rights can leverage her education for her future. But Zainab says it's also important to help communities adjust to women with a greater level of confidence or education. Initially, you, you just assume that once you, you know, take the, the, the young woman and you, you know, build her capacity, you educate her, you train her. Of course, we see that change at her individual level, but we also tend to forget that she does not exist in isolation. And so to ensure that when she gets back home or she gets back into the community, the community is also ready to see the changes in her. 
and will, you know, create that enabling environment. So yes, it's it's two sides of a pod. This is something that really worked with us. And one of the things that we did do was to engage with the family members, the husbands, especially for those that were married, the parents for those that were unmarried, and uh, working with the traditional and religious leaders in the community to talk about change, to talk about why this change is happening and why the communities need to continue to support these young women as they go and they come back from school. And that's one of the reasons why this dimension is so tricky. It's not just about providing more or better services for women. It's about helping societies see women in a different light and enabling them to exercise more power, often power that's been in the hands of men. That's not an easy task. Research from GII shows this too. Although equality gains were made over the past several decades, progress on helping women gain greater political power was slow. Here's Uche again. Over the years, we... We've seen there have been improvement, and uh, in particular in the report Dr. Caldam mentioned, the the uh, the improvement in the maternal mortality ratio indicator has been uh, very large, um, and this is in line with our um, <coughs> research that uh, we've seen the gaps in basic human development dimension, like in health, uh, primary education, are closing. Uh, on the other hand. We, we, we don't see the same trend for other uh, more enhanced capability dimensions, um, th- those dimensions that are more related to power relation and enhanced agencies. So the higher the power and responsibility, you still see large gender gap and the same for economic upper- participation, right? So women might have um, equal or similar uh, overall employment opportunity as men, but if when we look at the uh, more senior position, uh, economic position, women are very severely underrepresented. When the UNDP noticed these gaps, they changed tack. My name is Carolina Rivera Vasquez. Uh, I am an economist and I'm currently working as a researcher for the Human Development Report Office at UNDP. And I worked on developing the Gender Social Norms Index in 2020. We started seeing some progress on gender equality in the basic areas. So what support like women's rights, for example, enrollment in primary education, participation in the economy or having the ability to vote. But then when we started going into areas that involve more responsibility, leadership or greater social payoffs and greater power, we saw there was a kind of a setback. That's when UNDP developed the Gender and Social Norms Index, or GSNI. The GSNI shows uh, the percentage of people that have a bias against gender in the political, educational, economic, and physical integrity dimensions. At UNDP, we are not the producers of the data. We are users of other surveys. And in the case of the Social Norms Index, we use the World Value Survey which is a survey produced by a a conglomerate of researchers from Sweden and other parts in in Europe. Uh, And they are the ones who design the instruments. So we are users of that data to produce the indices and then analyze it. Based on the available data, Carolina and her team designed the index with seven indicators, all equally weighted. In many instances, it might only take one bias from one person to block a woman's progress in society. 
So this is why each indicator is as important as the others. The idea also behind it was for it to be a powerful advocacy tool that put light on the need to address these discriminatory social norms and the different power imbalances. And the index is showing greater bias against gender equality in the areas that present the strongest challenges to power relations. So, for example, men have high biases in thinking that men make better political leaders than women do. It is very critical to have these like new measures and to experiment with new sources of data uh, that go into these attitudes and social norms against equality because it's the only way that we are going to make changes that last through many years and that we're going to tackle this gender gap that is not just a gender gap, but a power gap. Ceding power to others usually doesn't appeal to most humans, whether you're male or female. So how can we realistically propose to shift that power gap between men and women? And are there any health incentives? That's what we're talking about next time. On episode three, we explore how political participation and power affects our health. We ask, can more female politicians make us healthier? Unburdened is a DAI production. Check out our show notes for the links to the research we used in this episode. If you liked the show, leave us a rating, or you can get in touch with me, Megan Howe, on Twitter. For more information, visit our website at dai.com slash unburdened dash podcast. See you next time.